All right, good morning. We're continuing this series from last week. We're looking at the three different gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus. We think about it and we visualize what it might be like at that time. I'm guessing that, that many of us have that nativity scene, that, that manger scene. We probably see the three wise men. They have these flowing robes. They have these tall hats. They're made of porcelain. You probably see some farm animals. Maybe you even see a, a sheep or a cow. You see some shepherds. If the, the roof is pitched, maybe there's an angel that, that is glowing at the top. And there's baby Jesus. Maybe you're like me, trying to find baby Jesus in the box that was supposed to have baby Jesus in. Now the interesting thing is, the challenge for us is likely they weren't three, there weren't three wise men. And the interesting thing is they probably didn't travel to the manger scene. Jesus was probably not an infant at that time. Most scholars believe that he was at least a year old. He was probably 18 months old. I'm sorry for wrecking that Christmas image that you have in your mind. You don't need to go grab your stuff out of the manger scene and put away the wise men now. It fits our narrative. We, we like it. The interesting piece this week for me was... When I start to think of the wise men bowing down to a toddler, how many of you have been around a two-year-old? Let's be honest, I used to judge two-year-olds before I had children. You know what I'm talking about. It's, I'm on a plane, these kids are acting crazy, and I would judge you. The two-year-old is out of control. You're like, I'll give anything to that kid. You suddenly become the worst parent. Here's my iPhone, take it. I'll give you candy, I'll give you a pony, I'll give you a race car. Whatever it is, just stop. And so when we come into this Christmas story, it really changes my visual. Three wise men, six wise men, ten, twelve wise men bowing down and offering gifts to a toddler. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then this would have been a great gift for a toddler. They opened their treasures and presents and gave to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Un Usual gifts in our day and age. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But these gifts were incredibly valuable gifts. Very useful gifts. Gifts that had symbolic meaning to the, what was prophesied about Christ earlier on. To be honest, I have received some unusual gifts throughout the years of being a pastor. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to share those this morning because we're on video and I wouldn't want the people who gave them to me to be in that category. The wise men gave Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold was 
very valuable from a monetary standpoint, just like it is today. But gold represented something that Trent's going to talk about next week. Pastor Trent's going to talk about that gold symbolizes Jesus as the king. Frankincense, like we talked about last week, actually symbolized Jesus as our high priest, our great high priest, who would offer his life. Except he's one who sympathizes with us. Jesus understands. This week, as I'm sure we are all wrestling through our life in COVID, let me just declare that Jesus sympathizes and he understands you. Today we're going to talk about the gift of myrrh. Myrrh is this valuable gum-like substance that actually is referenced 17 different times in the Bible. Occasionally, myrrh was used as an antiseptic. For example, when Jesus was on the cross, the, offer, the, uh, the officials offered him white, uh, some wine mixed with myrrh to dull the pain. And as they offered him myrrh and wine, Jesus actually rejected it because he wanted to bear the full force and weight of our sins. More commonly, though, myrrh was known as an ingredient used to embalm the dead. Myrrh would have been used when Jesus gave his life to prepare his body for burial. Myrrh represents Jesus as the suffering servant. Don't lose those words, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who is born to die for the forgiveness of our sins. Just look with me at, at this Old Testament prophetic message from Isaiah 52. It reads this in verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Powerful words from Isaiah 52. The interesting thing is that Isaiah prophesied 700 years before the birth of Christ. He gave a very detailed account of what the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, Jesus, would endure on our behalf. So first I'm going to show you the problem because you and I have a real problem. And then I'm going to show you the price that Jesus paid for our problem, our sin problem, so that we could be forgiven and experience eternal life. So let's start with our problem. Isaiah 53, verse 6. Isaiah says this, and he's describing sheep. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We've, let, we've left God's path. We've gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own desires. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We've left God's path. Isaiah says that we're like sheep 
And unfortunately, being like a sheep is not a compliment. If Isaiah had said, we're all lions, that might have been a compliment. If Isaiah would have said, we're like eagles, that might have been a compliment. But when he compared us to sheep, he was essentially saying this, you're not the smartest. When we refer to to sheep, sheep were basically known for three things. They were known that they're weak, they're witless, and they're wayward. They're weak. Think about this for a second. Sheep are defenseless. If a coyote or, you know, some other kind of animal, a lion comes after a sheep, how does a sheep defend itself? Well, they don't got fangs. They don't have quills that they can shoot. They're not fast. They can't fly. They don't blend in. They don't have a poisonous tongue. They're essentially defenseless. Not only are sheep defenseless, but they don't run away. They don't even spread out when they run away. No, sheep huddle up and say, take your pick, whichever one you want, they're weak. In other words, sheep don't think for themselves. They tend to follow the crowd. If one sheep does stupid things, the other sheep do stupid things. In fact, there's a story, and you can look it up, just like the singing beaver was last week. In the year 2005, and we actually have some footage from this, in the year 2005, in Turkey, 1,500 dumb sheep followed each other off of a cliff. The guys upstairs are going to show us kind of a reenactment of this. As you can see, this isn't the real footage. This is just a reenactment. Yes, we used to stunt sheep. There was lots of sheep that then collapsed and went over the cliff. 500 actually died. And then that final image. If you were the end, you actually survived because there was a nice landing spot. You would think, after the first one, the second one, the third one, the fourth one, the fifth one, the sixth one, the seventh one, you think after all of those, one of the sheep would have went, this is not a good plan. I'm backing off. But no, 1,500 sheep followed each other off the cliff. The bad news is 500 of them died. The good news is it was the first 500. The rest lived because the first 500 made a nice landing. When Isaiah calls us sheep, It's not a compliment. Sheep are also wayward. They wander. Where are you going, sheep? I don't know. I'm looking for something. I'm looking for happiness over there. Oh, if I get that item, I'll be so happy. If I can do that at Christmas, I'll be so happy. You know, I'm in debt. If I just have this experience, it'll be great. It won't hurt. Everyone else does it. I'm trying. Sheep are wayward. They wander. When the prophet Isaiah said this, all of us are like sheep, he wasn't saying, wow, you're amazing. He was saying, you need lots of help because you tend to go away from God's path. 
and you choose your own. Look back at Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, the one who would be called Jesus. The Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed. He was treated harshly. Yet Jesus never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Have you ever been hurt, mistreated, rejected, overlooked, unjustly criticized, misunderstood? Jesus, the suffering servant, understands. It was prophesied of him that he would be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. Yet we turned our back on him. We looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he, Jesus, our Savior, the suffering servant, was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. That's what Jesus would do for us. Jesus died on a cross. He rose again. Why should I follow Jesus? Why should I devote my life to him? When you understand the magnitude of his suffering, the depths of his love, you won't, you can't casually say, I'm a Christ follower. Your relationship with Jesus depends on the circumstances. When you understand what he did for us, the declaration of divine love, the only reasonable response is to wholly, completely follow him. Start with the Garden of Gethsemane. That was the place where Jesus wrestled with God when he got a glimpse of the suffering that was to come. And he said to his disciples, you watch and pray. But they just fell asleep. And all alone, he cries out to God, knowing what is to come. Jesus said, God, would you remove this cup of suffering from me? And then he fell to the ground, and blood dripped from his brow. He falls to the ground and says, my soul is overwhelmed. I can't take it. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's how bad it was. God, can we do it another way? And then he declares this, Yet, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And then one of his own, Judas, betrays him with a kiss. He's arrested, he's falsely accused, he's unfairly treated, and he's sentenced to death by crucifixion. Jesus would be stripped naked, he would be publicly exposed, he was personally humiliated and ashamed. 
They put a crown of thorns on his head, two inches of these thorns going into his brow, and then the beating would start again and again and again. They'd whip him across his back. They would take clubs and pound it against his head, burying the, the thorns deeper in his brow. Isaiah actually implies in Isaiah 50 that they would pull out his beard, that he was so disfigured that he wasn't even recognizable as a human being. Then weak and suffering and all alone, they'd give him the crossbar weighing about 100 pounds, force him to carry it six football fields, known as the way of suffering to be crucified on the cross. Then they would take the nails, drive them into his wrists, through his feet, hang him on the cross while his bloody back laid against the rough wood of the cross. The only way he could breathe is to pull himself up uh, with the wrists full of nails, push himself up on the feet trying to catch a breath. It wouldn't be long before his shoulders would be dislocated. His legs would give out. And he was slowly, slowly, slowly being unable to catch a breath, hanging under the heat of the day, shamefully, nakedly exposed as creation mocks the Son of God, the Creator. The most painful part was when the innocent one who had never sinned bore the sins of the world, because everything vile and filthy, unholy, Jesus became that. And God in his righteousness and holiness could not look any longer upon sin. God pulled away an intimate fellowship with Jesus, known as his father is broken. And in probably the most agonizing moment of his life, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you pulled away from me? Why aren't you here with me? Why have you forsaken me? Then they offered him the wine mixed with myrrh. The very same thing that they would use to embalm him at his death. And he says, I don't want to take anything to numb the pain. I will finish what my father sent me to do, and he declares it in, in faith. It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave his life for the forgiveness of our sins. And the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before this, ever took place, prophetically declared what this child, this innocent one, born of a virgin, never sinned, would endure on behalf of our sinfulness. No one cared that Jesus died without descendants, that his life was cut off short in midstream, that he was struck down for the rebellion of, of his people. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. And then he was put in a rich man's grave. How did Isaiah know that a man named Joseph, a rich man, would offer his grave 700 years later? When he sees all that is accomplished, when he sees all that will be satisfied, and because of my experience, 
my suffering servant will make it possible for many to be counted as righteous because he'll bear the sins. That's what he did for us. I want you to think about that for a moment. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to something known as the Passover. Once a year, God would execute his temporary judgment on the sins of the people. He would unleash the the fiercest force in the world, his righteous judgment on the sins of mankind. What could protect you from that judgment? Well, the blood of an innocent lamb. A family would take a lamb, a one-year-old lamb, sacrifice uh, that lamb, eat the meat of the lamb, and take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost, on the top and the sides. Then death would pass over that house because that family was saved by the blood of an innocent lamb. When you think about that, it's confusing. It seems weird. It seems completely unfair. And yet, all the way back to that historic event, we see the cross foreshadowed when the blood of the lamb was put on the top of the doorpost and it would certainly drip down. And both sides, you see the picture of an instrument of torture on which the lamb of God would shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. What separates Christianity is that God would become flesh and he would be pierced for our rebellion. He'd be crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. And by the stripes he wore on his back, he would be healed. So when you visualize it, stay with me. The wise men will offer him myrrh, the substance used to embalm the dead. You understand that God was foreshadowing what was yet to come. The Lamb of God would be slain for the sins of the world. Jesus understood this and prophesied it of himself. He said this in Luke chapter 9, verse 22 and 23. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Let me tell you what Jesus did not say. He didn't say you say some prayer and then you're blessed and prosperous every day for the rest of your life. He didn't say you pray a little prayer of salvation and you do whatever you want and Jesus is going to set your sins free. What he said was, if you want to be a disciple, then you deny yourself. It's not about you. Then he said, not only do you deny yourself, you then take up your cross. In other words, you die to yourself. And then when you've done those two things, you follow me. Friends, it's not a hobby. It's not an add-on. It's not something that helps us feel good when we celebrate Santa and do all the normal traditions. This season is about God becoming flesh, born of a virgin, not inheriting the sin nature of an earthly father, but the heavenly nature of a divine father who never sins, 
And when you understand it, it overwhelms and overtakes your life. He endured this for you, for your lives, for mine, for my lustfulness, for my hypocrisy, for my judgmental spirit, my greed, my anger, my unforgiveness, my wicked heart. And God sent three wise men to give him gold, prophetically declaring that he would be the king of kings and lord of lords. They gave the gift of frankincense. He's our high priest. The veil is ripped. He gave his life. We can access boldly before the throne of God. Our high priest receives for us because he understands. He sympathizes with us. And myrrh, the gift of myrrh, an embalming material declaring that this one, this child was born to die. Friends, that's why it's called the gospel. The gospel is the story of God's will, God's way, God's work of providing salvation and justice through the gift of Jesus. God's son for the whole world. It is the good news beyond measure that God would do that for us. That his son would be crushed for our rebellion, beaten so that we could be whole. By his stripes were, we are healed. And because of what he did, he died and he rose again. I don't follow him because I have to. Not because it makes me a better person. Not because it gives me something to do every so often and on Sundays, but because of what Jesus did and how he did it. I give him my whole life. So Father, today we ask that you would remind us that you are the, the high priest, that you were born to die, and that in life, we are called to take up our cross. We love and adore you. Thank you so much for being a God who lavishes his love on us. As we come into communion, may we be reminded of the blood of the new covenant and the body that was broken. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen.